Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's Jim Mallard here. Welcome to the Mallard Report. The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things. Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcast, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. My guest tonight is Vic Farrar. Uh, have you, did you ever interview or do an arson case? Cause I just almost lit my desk on fire. <laughs> I, I have worked on arson cases. <laughs> uh, cause normally we do a more spiritually based show, but we'll, we'll get into some fun stuff. It's all people related, so it's all connected, but I light a little candle and have a good time. Just kind of gets me in the mood for doing these shows. And man, I, I seriously have notes on my desk and they almost just all caught on fire. This would have been a great live stream video there for, there for a few seconds. It was touch and go. Just so we know, just so we know, but that, that few seconds I was playing intro music, this, this show almost literally went up in frame, flames. Like when Jerry Lee Lewis set the piano on fire, yeah, and like great balls of fire. This, this almost was the end, the last show, and you almost got the, <laughs> literally, uh, burning it to the ground, I guess. I guess that's one way to go out. Um, how are you doing tonight, Vic? I'm doing great. The beauties of doing these live, like if that was, if this was a podcast, you never would have known that because I would have just never told you. And, played it off as edited but since i was getting ready and there i do do some videos so i'm sure somebody might have seen this big smoke ball and wondered um so you you've wrote i want to say four or five books what's what's the newest one uh i've written five books four about the new york city police department the last one i've written is called nypd law and disorder okay there it is because amazon's doing me no favors i could see them all but they're not in the order of publication which helps me none okay Anyway, so what's, what's the law and disorder about? NYPD law and disorder, all my books are basically the same. They're, they're, they're filled with funny stories about interesting characters and cops and interesting criminals I worked with and things gone incredibly wrong. NYPD law and disorder opens up with a chapter called Embarrassing Moments. And most authors like to write, like to make themselves the hero in a story. They save the day, they have the quick comeback. Well, in embarrassing moments, it, it, it tells when things go wrong. So early in my career, I pull over a car in the back seat of three guys with four kilos of coke. Pull them out of the car. I arrest them. I'm walking around the station house, parading around with these four kilos of coke in my hand like I won the Stanley Cup. Everybody's high-fiving me and taking photos. Well, later that night, I had to go down to court and draw up the arrest. So across the street from the Bronx Courthouse, which is in a terrible neighborhood, they just built a new food court. So I go in there, I sit down in a restaurant, I'm having veal parmesan spaghetti, I'm in uniform and I'm reflected on the arrest and my stomach goes. I've always had a weak stomach. I gotta use the bathroom. And I'm not using the bathroom across the street in the Bronx Courthouse, it's a dump. So I go into this new bathroom, it's like a cathedral, it's nice and clean, no one's in there. I go into the stall, I take off my gun belt, I hang it on the hook, I drop my pants to the floor and I'm getting ready for liftoff. Next thing you know, the bathroom door kicks in and I hear four or five teenagers roughhousing. They're hitting the, they're hitting the hand dryers. They're running the sinks. They're making all sorts of noise. Now I'm in uniform, but I'm in a vulnerable position with my pants down to my ankles. So I said, you know what? I better get dressed and get the hell out of here. Just as I look up, pick up my pants, one of the teenagers had gone into the next stall, was standing on the toilet, and he's reaching over and he's trying to grab my gun belt off the hook. So I jump up with one hand trying to pull my pants up, and with the other hand, I grab her on the neck and I pull him. Well, when I pull him, I inadvertently pull him close to the gun belt. Now, he got, now this kid's got my gun belt. I drop my pants with one hand, I got him with the neck with the other, and I'm just pummeling him. Let go of the gun belt. I'm just 
just wailing on him, right? While I'm punching him, his friends run into the next stall. They grab his legs, and now I'm in a virtual tug-of-war with this kid over the bathroom stall. The aluminum wall or partition or whatever you want to call it buckles, and they go crashing into the next stall. I pull up my pants. I get dressed. I run out into the food court, and they're gone. And, you know, my first reaction is to go put it over the radio, and I said to myself, what are the responding cops going to do? I'd be the laughing – what am I going to call the police on myself? I'm in uniform. I'd be the laughing stock at the Bronx at that point. So I sucked it up, and I kept that story to myself until 30 years later when I got into writing. Yeah, so let's dive into that. I guess we need to get into that because there's a – obviously there's an element of writing when you're writing reports and et cetera, et cetera, but that's not necessarily writing for A, enjoyment, or B, for a reader. So what made that exactly. trans- what made that transition for you? I was bored. <laughs> I retired after twenty. I was retired after twenty year with the NYPD. I retired down to Florida. I became a cop down in Florida for a cup of coffee. I absolutely hated it. It was like being in an episode of Reno when I won one. I said, ah, "Enough of this crap." And I said, "I got to do something with myself." And all my friends used to tell me, "You know, you got so many great stories. You should really write this stuff down." And the good thing for me is I have a very good memory. So I started jotting these stories down, and I said, you know, I was a little nervous about writing books about law enforcement because the two things that I didn't want to get any of my friends in trouble or divorced. (laughs) So what I do with my books is I change. I never put names. I change locations. I change dates. I change ranks. I might embellish. I move characters around. But for the most part, all of my stories are things that really happen. So... uh moment of clarity right because the first book <laughs> was titled dickheads and debauchery and other indeed ingenious ways to die i've noticed the little theme change of your titles um i appreciate the first one but i'm assuming somebody grabbed a hold of you and said you probably can't do that no no dickheads <laughs> and debauchery and other ingenious ways to die i just I, I wanted to write the police books, but then I, I, I wasn't there yet. So I oh, said, okay. well, let, let me see if I could write a comedy. And I did. And that book is about the ridiculous things and things people do to shorten their life expectancy. And growing up in the Bronx and being a cop, I've seen people put themselves and doing ridiculous things to get themselves seriously injured or, or, or you know, killed. Uh, give, give. I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch when I say give me an example, but give me one because I'm just, I, I, I'm just curious because I want to laugh, I guess. Oh, you'll laugh. Okay, so in the New York City, in, in the New York City subway system, you have a lot of homeless that live in those tunnels. Believe it or not, there's little niches carved out in there where they hang out and live and sleep and everything. Well, sometimes you got to use the bathroom, and the problem is in the subway you have the third rail. What'll happen sometimes is when these homeless people go to take a piss. They'll piss on the third rail, and they'll electrocute themselves through their dick. I'm not sure I'm laughing or terrified at this point. Uh, <laughs> you asked, I told. <laughs> I know. I guess I've had a number of lawyers tell me, "Be careful what I ask for," and uh, you just might get it. And now I'm thinking, now I'm understanding where that mindset comes from because I talk to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, but honestly. Through the years, I mean, you said you did it for 25 years. How did that change from day one to the day you retired? Just as a public perception, I guess, is, we'll start there. All right. So what, when you're hired as a cop, right, it's everything. They, you go through the police academy and you're bombarded with propaganda, right? And then you get out of the police academy and you realize, well, that was all bullshit. <laughs> and... You know, as a young, 21 years old in 1987, I'm in the South Bronx, you know, and I grew up in the Bronx, but not the South Bronx. And, you know, I just remember getting dropped off on a foot post in front of abandoned buildings. And I'm like, and and now what? Like, yeah, I know how to use the gun and I know how to use the nightstick. And I kind of know the law for the most part, but I knew nothing about procedure or what happens after you put the handcuffs on somebody. So it was a little overwhelming. Fast forward 20 years later. I'm a detective in one of the most prestigious units in the New York City Police Department, the Auto Crime Division, where I'm working on chop shops and stolen vehicles being exported out of countries and wor- working on uh, homicide cases that fall into organized crime and the mafia and chop shops. And I, and I, I remember like 
saying to myself, wow, I mean, I've come such a long way from that kid that my first arrest standing there with my thumb up my ass, not knowing what to do with the prisoner or where he went or anything. And here I am like working on these really interesting cases. So everything came full circle. So, okay. So, so you mentioned being up towards the top there and I, of course, okay. You don't have, well, it doesn't matter. You can't shoot me right now anyway. So I'm going to ask this question. Uh, <laughs> how different, I mean, you could pick your TV show, but you know what I'm saying? There's, all these right. lovely law enforcement TV shows that are out there. How, how? I mean, obviously some of them are great fictionalized things, but um, how far off are some of them? They're all off. I mean, the closest thing, the closest thing is Law and Order, and I haven't watched Law and Order in years. But early on, when I used to watch it, the story about you know um, how the, the the responding cops come, how they handle the crime scene, how the detectives come, how the detectives deal with witnesses how detectives deal with the bad guys, how they deal with the district attorney's office. And then it shows you from the district attorney's perspective how, how they prosecute a case, which there's a lot of truth in that. Other than that, I mean, you can't go around crashing cars. I mean, you watch like Lethal Weapon or something. I mean, you crash a car at NYPD, they ground you. They don't want to hear. You're not commandeering cars. I mean, you, I mean all that's bullshit. Oh come on! No, that that's all real. Come on, feed the feed the machine. That's I'm all real. I'm sorry to bust your bubble, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I I know it's not obviously because if you did that, I mean, boy, this would be a different world. I think <laughs> if everybody was ant. So uh, what, what's the? I was trying to figure the guy from Legal Weapons' name, and it just I'm seeing his face. Mel Gibson. Yeah, I'm like I'm I'm trying to blank. If every cop was like that, this world would be so much well, probably better, worse off. I don't know. I was gonna say better off, but I'm not sure. Anyways, yeah, uh, <laughs> it'd be fun to have Joe Pesci in the backseat of the car. <laughs> For how long? Let's be honest. <laughs> oh man, I grew up in the Bronx. Joe Pesci did all those mob movies. I let him hang for a while. So. What's the one under... Oh, oh, here we go. Is Legal Up in a Christmas movie? I knew that was going to come up with my people. Yes. Okay, anyways. Uh, sorry. That's <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so what's the biggest misnomer about... Well, especially being a detective. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I, you know, I have this old, very old image of the guy with the flip notebook and writing, just constantly writing and listening and trying to figure out things. But I'm sure it's much well, different. Well, I didn't... Well, I didn't work in a detective squad, per se. So the closest thing to what you would see in a detective squad was from the television show in the 1970s, Barney Miller, where there's a bunch of guys sitting around in an office. Downstairs is the precinct. Cops are bringing in reports. The reports are getting kicked up to the detectives. The detectives are fighting over. I had the last homicide. You, you, you stuck me. You fucked me over with this case. And, you know, they're all grumpy and. That is kind of the way a detective squad works in New York City because you're handling anything from a bounce check to domestic violence to a homicide. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Now, where I worked in organized crime, we would work cases. We would pick off the garden variety pain-in-the-ass car thieves that were spiking the numbers, and then we also targeted crews or gangs that were, you know, ripping off, hitting car dealerships over the weekend, pulling 10, 15 cars out or shipping cars out of the country. So you're in the. This was almost bad. You're in the organized crime. So let's let's take their, let's take their Hollywood image, so to speak. Uh, of course, you think Sopranos. You think Godfather. How, I'm assuming that's also not necessarily true. Sopranos was close. No, the Godfather now. But I mean, the Sopranos was close as far as. There was a couple of scenes in there where there, there was uh, they were dealing with car theft rings and how the structure of the mafia worked where there's a boss, then he's got capos and then the capos have, a, have made members and then made members have, have associates. So it, it is a pyramid, but I mean, they have to sum it up in an hour. Tony Soprano wouldn't be talking to a lot of these people because the more people you talk to, the more it exposes you to a confidential informant or a wiretap or parabolics where they can listen to your conversations. So the reality is, Mob guys, like the upper echelon ones, the smart ones, rarely get on the phone. They rarely meet face-to-face with too many people because the more people you expose yourself, the more people you're dealing with, the more you expose yourself and you make yourself that much closer to law enforcement. 
Ask him about Mafia Detective Joe Coffey. Joe Coffey was a let. Now, I never met Joe Coffey, but Joe Coffey was a legend. Joe Coffey was, he's one of these guys that just, he pops up everywhere. I mean, as a kid, he was on the news. Now, I also knew guys like that in my time where they were kind of publicity hounds. But from what I was told, and I know somebody that knew him personally, he was the real deal. Joe Coffey, as a young guy, was a model. He actually was the original Marlboro man. Um, he worked on organized crime cases, and he was also one of the um, the commanders that was going after David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, who in the summer of 77 was going around shooting uh, young couples as they were hanging out in their cars. And Joe Coffey was the real deal. I think he just passed not too long ago. So uh, how do I ask this question? Um, when when a detective or somebody out there is trying to get that spotlight, how do the, the other guys take take to that? Do they give him a hard time? Do they shun him? How does that work? Depends on the guy. Uh, and it's like anything else in life. You could be the greatest guy in the world. All right, so, so think about it if you worked in Walmart and there's there's a guy there that's just, he's unstoppable. He's stocking the shelves and he's doing what he's told and he's a star. The people around him are either like, wow, that guy really breaks his ass. He deserves a raise. And then you have the other guys that are like, look at this guy. He's making us all look bad. It depends on where you work and it depends on if you're genuine. If you're going out there busting your ass and you're doing God's work, and you don't shun the publicity, and you don't shun the spotlight. Guys will bust your ball. Look at his hand. They'll, they'll break your ball. Other guys that really aren't doing anything, you know what I mean, that, that try to jump in there, they're the ones that kind of, they're not well looked upon. Yeah, I mean, I figured that, but I, I just, I can see I can see that go. like I said, I can see that going both ways, right? And I, I'm sure there's a lot of that, no matter what it is, one side or the other, about ribbon and good, um, I don't want to say good good sense, but I, I you know you get a group of guys together and it's just going to happen. <laughs> oh God! In my book NYPD Through the Looking Glass, this there's a chapter in there dedicated to practical jokes. I mean the things that we did to each other. I mean, I, I'll tell you a quick story. One time, when you're working in a, in a detective office, right, you're surrounded by trained eyes, trained observers that don't miss a trick. So one day it was getting close to six o'clock. I was going home. I had a date. So I changed my slacks. One of the detectives in the office instantly picked up on it. So when I went to get a cup of coffee, he took a glass of cold water and he poured it in my seat. I come down, I plop my ass down, and I get the wet ass. Everybody's laughing. It's funny. I'm like, all right, you got me. I go downstairs. I get changed. I go outside. Around the corner from our office was a pet store. I went, I went and I bought 100 crickets. And I put them in a bag. Well, they put them in a bag. I went into the parking lot. I used the Slim Jim. I opened up his car. I popped open his back, his back seat. I cut the bag and I dumped a hundred crickets in his back seat. Went back upstairs. He's like, "Hey, you know, Vic, it's no problem, right?" I said, "No, nah, we're good. Don't worry about it." We're watching out the window. He jumped out of the car. He was screaming. He couldn't get he couldn't get the things out of his car. He bought roach bombs to get rid of them. They would go away for a while and they kept breathing again. The guy wound up selling the car. <laughs> well, that's good. I like that. Oh, yeah. we were when we were in when we were in uniform. We used to wear the powder blue uniform. So what we you, we would do sometimes, like especially during the summer, you'd wait till a radio call went into the station house, and you knew they were going to be in there for an hour or whatever. What you would do is you'd get into their car, you'd remove the air vents, and then you'd pour cornstarch down the AC vents, and then you put the vents back and you put the AC on high. So when they got in the car and they turned on turned on the AC, it would come on full blast. And blow white powder all over them. <laughs> and cornstarch, when you get it, because well, you're hot and wet and sweaty, by the way, for people that don't know that, it just becomes cement on you. It, yeah. It's brutal. <laughs> the pay that Sour went, time. As the pay that went off. And uh, obviously, you know that I have experience with that by, based off of that. But, anyways, <laughs> it is cornstarch is probably the best thing ever made for a, black, a practical joke. Um, so, oh, Germantown Ron wants me to ask you about, have you ever re- arrested somebody or dealt with somebody who was well-known, sports celebrity or, you know, you know, well-known people? I mean, it's New York. Uh, I know. I, I never arrested somebody famous, but I've met a lot of famous people. Um, tons. And th- it runs the gamut. Some are really cool and some are not so cool. Um, 
One guy I met was really cool was I was working the U.S. Open in 2016. I was in a suit and tie. And I look over, and if you guys remember John Lovitz from Saturday Night Live, he's standing there, and he's had a couple of cocktails in him. And I walk over, and I start busting his balls because he was doing those Subway commercials. And I'm going, eat fresh. And he goes, eh, wise guy. I go, what are you doing here? He goes, eh, my daughter wants me to get an autograph of some tennis player. I says, well, come on. Let me see if I can make that happen for you. So I brought him in the back. And this tennis player, I can't think of his name, but he wasn't a big shot or anything, but his daughter liked the way the guy looked or whatever. So um, I went in there. I go, listen, uh, John Lovitz from Saturday Night Live is here. He wants your autograph. He goes, get the fuck out of here. I said, no, I'm not kidding around. I brought him out, and I'm hanging out with John Lovitz and this tennis player, and they're swapping story. And Lovitz could not have been nice. He was taking photos with us. I also met Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond. I mean, couldn't have been one of the nicest guys in the world. Just a mellow, down-to-earth guy. Like, if he was your next-door neighbor, you'd love the guy. I mean, just couldn't be nicer. He, he played a cop on that show, right? Yes. And the funny thing is, Ray Romano's brother um, actually worked in a unit that I was in. And he was very low-key guy, like Robert was. And I says, well, we have a friend in common. And he goes, who? I go, Richie Romano. And he goes, uh-huh. He's got that deep laugh. He's like, uh-huh. So, and I says, you got the part right. And he goes, oh, thank you. He's just, just a general down-to-earth guy. So, of course, I have to ask you, being New York, um, any run-in with Donald Trump? No, have not. No, never met Donald Trump. Uh, well, I don't know if that's good news or bad news. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, so, like I said, we normally do a more spiritual-based show around here, so I've got to ask you, any uh, fun encounters with anything paranormal, uh, ghosts or things that, you know, are weird? Uh, well, first of all, I've been asked this question before because I've gone on a couple of platforms like yours. I always say, <laughs> I don't, I think if a spaceship or UFOs or extraterrestrials came to the Bronx, <laughs> they would not want its residence in a spaceship. Now, I come from the Bronx, so I'm not knocking my, my former, you know, borough. But I, I, I think, I think they tend if they do abduct people, if they do exist, they tend to do it from the heartland where people, where, where people may have a, a holier spirit, perhaps. But I don't think they want us. I'll, I'll tell you, I've told this story a few weeks ago, so I'll try to keep it short for the people that have heard it a couple weeks ago. But uh, I flew to New York for a, a Yankees game. I'm a I'm from western Pennsylvania, so I'm a Pirates fan. Now, you understand that the Pirates have been horrible from the majority of my life, right? And... Um, but me and my buddy flew up, and we flew into JFK, and we're on the elevator going down to the subway. First interaction with somebody. The guy looks at me wearing a Yankees hat and says, the Pirates suck. And I looked at him, and I said, shut up. You've won, like, seven World Series in the last ten years. Just shut up. I know the Pirates suck. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> I, I Listen, growing up, I was a big Dave Parker fan. Yeah, like I mean, there was a time around here, but I mean, man, it's been way too long. But I, I you know, every time I, I I think of New York, I think of that guy. Like, like, I, yeah, like I get it. Like, yeah, there are a lot of New Yorkers that'll leave a bad taste in your mouth. You were asking <laughs> me about like spiritual or close encounters. Um, I've had, I, I, I've got some stories where people like, you know, it's just unexplainable, like. One time, two guys that I know, they're working at midnight, and uh, they run a plate, car comes back stolen, they get into a chase, bad guy crashes the car. Now, 99% of the time, when a bad guy crashes a car, they're running away. This guy had just gotten out of jail. He was smoking dust. He doesn't run away. He charges the two cops. He wrestles one of the cops' guns away from him, and he shoots him in the chest. Now, he hit my friend in the vest. Now, when you get hit in the chest, with a, he got shot with his own 38. So it's like getting hit with a baseball bat. I mean, he was in the hospital for him a couple of days. It like really did a number on his sternum. His partner was a shorter guy. His partner grabbed the guy around the waist and he put, he put his partner in a headlock. And while he's got his partner in the headlock, he's pointing the 38 at his head and he's squeezing off rounds trying to put one through his head. But this kid was wrestling and, and throwing his body around so much the shots were going wide. So anyway, it was a six-shot thirty-eight. The bad guy runs out of bullets. He throws the gun down. He starts running away. The responding cops come, and they light him up. 
So later on, this cop that was, you know, had the bullets whizzing past his head. He's a nervous wreck. He's in the hospital, you know, getting checked out. And he goes, I'm going to get a soda. He reaches into his pocket and he had a whistle. A lot of people might not know this, but NYPD cops are supposed to carry a whistle in case you got a direct traffic. Nobody ever does, but you keep it in your pocket during roll call in case they ask for it. He had left the whistle in his pocket, and while that guy was shooting at his head, one of the bullets deflected off the whistle and disintegrated it into his pocket because when he stuck his hand into his pocket, he felt like a, um, a sharp, twisted piece of metal. It was the whistle. That's crazy. So the bullet deflected off the whistle. Yeah, ricocheted off the whistle in his pocket. That is legitimately crazy. Like, I don't even know what to do with that. Like, you're not supposed to leave me speechless. Come on now. That's not good. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a lot. But, I mean, just, I mean, I know it's his leg, so he probably would have survived, right? But, still. Not I mean, necessarily. I, a, a, a good friend of mine died. Um, he, uh, they were at a dispute and um, they were going to lock this guy up. It was a domestic and the guy threw a mirror at them or a mirror broke. I forget how the story went. But anyway, when, when a friend of mine went to grab this guy, he slipped on a shard of glass from the broken mirror and a piece of the glass hit him in the femoral artery. And, you know, he, he bled out. They, they kept him alive for, for a day or two. And then unfortunately he passed. So, yeah, I mean, you, you can die from an injury to a leg very easily, believe it or not. That, I'm not. Okay, you're doing great. You're legitimately scaring me now. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, no, that's good, though. So, but, man, that that's as fluky as that is, falling on a piece of, I mean, that's horrible. That'd be a horrible way to go. Yeah, he's a really great guy, too. That's horrible. So, okay. Let's, let's find some positive news here for a minute. So you, you've been bored and you've been writing these books. Um, I'm assuming you're still writing? Yeah, yeah. I, I crank out about a book a year. You're going to run out of stories? I don't think so. You know, it's funny. After I write one of my NYPD books, right, my friends buy them up, and then the phone calls come or instant messages from, you know, Facebook or email. Hey, you should have written about so-and-so. Or remember when we did this? A lot of my friends are my biggest critics. They come out of the woodwork, and they'll they'll say things, and I'm like, I gotta write that down. So I kind of got like a, a file of stories I haven't gotten to yet, it's like a reserve. So I think I'm good for a while. Yeah, I was gonna say. Plus, it probably helps having people stare the echoes. I guess is the easiest way to put it. <laughs> Definitely. So, uh, how, okay. So this is a, a difficult question to ask, but you're the person to ask it to. Through the last couple of years, um, the back to blue movement and all this other stuff. How do you take that as a former police officer? Take what that movement, sorry, the, the, the back to blue and all the the blue line and all this stuff that's kind of been I don't want to say raging out there, but it's been promoted. You mean there. to fund the police? Yeah, that and the other side and that argument. How does how do you take that? Well, I think it's idiotic. If you defund the police, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? You know, it, it's, I just, I, I, I just think it's a moronic argument. Um, you know, they think, oh, we got to train the cops more. We got to train the cops more. Maybe we should train the public more. You know, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I got a kick in the ass a couple of times for being at the wrong place at the wrong time <clears throat> by, by cops. And I also went to, I also went to Catholic school where I got tuned up a couple of times. Now, each of those times, I was in the wrong, big time, wrong place, wrong time, shouldn't have been doing what I was doing. And, you know, the way I was raised, if I went to my dad and said, Dad, cop stopped me, and he gave me a kick in the ass, and my father would say, what did you do? And what's a kid going to say? Nothing. I know what my dad would have said. He would have said, all right, Vic, here's the, here's the deal. We're going to go to that police station, or I'm going to go to school, and if that teacher or that cop is more believable than you are, Jesus Christ isn't going to be able to save you. So, I mean, my parents loved me, and there was a lot of tough love, but at the same time, they taught me to respect authority. I got pulled over a bunch of times when I was a kid, and I got tickets when I was a kid before I was a cop. And I stopped. I pulled over. I put my hands on the wheel. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. And that was it. 
it's when when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. You know what I mean? It's you know, think of it this way: say the cop is a total scumbag, right? He's still got a gun. You know, why why would you provoke something like that to make a TikTok video? Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, I think people should more about go about their business and get on with their lives. And, you know, I, I just kind of think this is a movement to demoralize law enforcement. Yeah, it's definitely troublesome, to say the least. Um, what else was going to... Yeah, I don't understand some people. It's... Ugh, anyways. Um, what was I going to... There was something else in there. I totally got derailed, which is... Man. Um, no, okay, so... What would be... Okay, so this is a weird one. Sorry. Not really, but... That's it. You're fine. Um, what would be your advice to somebody who's just starting or wants to get into law enforcement today? I mean, obviously it's changed wildly since when... If, you know, somebody would have been out there and you would have heard some advice, but... Lay it on. Yeah, I got plenty of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, go for it. For young people... <laughs> yeah. For, for young people out there, I mean, people in their 20s, uh, for, you know, the world has changed. And... People tend nowadays to live their lives on social media. And what young cops should realize is the Internet is written is written in ink, not in pencil. And you put stupid stuff on there. Or, you know what I mean? You've got you've got your Facebook page or Instagram page. And you don't even have to necessarily be using your, your real name. But if a defense attorney sees you write and post in ridiculous stuff, and brings that up at a trial, you can get a case dismissed. You can get yourself in trouble. You know, and what also bothers me with, with young cops nowadays is they're making these TikTok videos and YouTube videos of dancing and doing these ridiculous things, acting like clowns. And I'm like, how do you expect the public to take you seriously if you're carrying on like a fool? You know what I mean? It's, you know, it, you're supposed to be the law. You're supposed to you're supposed to be a serious person. You're supposed to be a person that when someone's having a problem, they can come to you and you're going to mediate something. And you're carrying on the internet like a jackass. You know, who would take you seriously? That's interesting because I, I mean, I hadn't thought about it in that light. Of course, I I see the the relevance of trying to be whatever relevant, I guess. But I also see where you want to where you're at, where you want to be have this. Um, authoritative respect, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Well, I mean, listen, you're not relevant. You're not relevant enough that you took a civil service exam. If you play your cards right, you're going to retire after 20 or 25 years with a pension and health benefits. I think that makes you relatively relevant. If you want to be a TikTok influencer or an Instagram, then do that. If you want to be a, a, a podcast host, then you do that. But you know, I can do these things now. I'm retired, but I would never have gotten involved in this had I been active in law enforcement. You, you're just giving people something to beat you over the head with. Where, where are you doing your TikTok dances? I missed that in my research for you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> I was just about ready to break the internet. I think. <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't. I personally don't understand any of the dances, but I'm so I'm probably like you, washed up and angry i don't get it <laughs> i'm bitter <laughs> fine to me no i mean I, there's a time and a place for it and most people that are doing them shouldn't be doing them but that's just anyways um now um so okay i'm in, i'm in, i'm interested of how yeah i know you said you were bored but let's get back into this writing process thing because sure have were you always interested in writing I mean, like I said, there Not was all. Other, the technical end of writing for work, but I mean, like I said earlier, there's a this differentiation. So besides being bored, I mean, obviously boredom does cause people to do strange things, but there's wanting to write and then being able to write. So how did that process come together for you? I never, you know, I, 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 I never took journalism. Uh, I'm not a trained writer or anything like that. It's just, I was bored. And I said, you know, maybe I can make a little bit of money doing this. And, you know, I, I think it's more difficult for me. Like I said, my books, you can pick them up at any point. You can grab one of my books and just thumb through it and stop at a page. And there's going to be a chapter with highlighted stories. It's, they're great travel books or beach books or, 
you know, it, it's, I, 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 I struggle with writing in chronological order. If I had to sit there and, and write Genesis and, and go all the way, you know, I, I couldn't do it. It's, I, I come up with an idea, I come up with a story, and I run with it. Um, and it works for me. You know, um, there were guys that um, became cops to become authors, if that makes any sense. So they, they had already, they, they had gone to school for journalism, they had these accredited degrees, and they joined the NYPD later in life, and they hung around for a cup of coffee, they scooped up whatever they could, and, you know, God bless them, they, they wrote some books, and you know, I put in the time, put in my work, and, you know, once I got done with law enforcement, I said, well, maybe I can make a couple of bucks doing this, and that, and that's just what I did, and it's kind of turned into, like, a little cottage industry for me. So, okay, so let's double down here for a minute, because I'm, I'm, I, I love sure. doing this with writers, because I can't write to save my life. I'm a, I'm a tweet writer. That's about as far as it gets. Um, <laughs> so you wrote the first book, and you sent it to some friends. How how the feedback go from that? So okay, I, I'm not a patient person. I wasn't going to send my manuscripts out to like a large publish publishing houses and then wait for for them to pick my book, send me a little advance, and then they're going to edit it. They're going to tell me how it is, and they're going to control my royalties. What I did was, I mean, it was each book I've learned a little bit more with the process of how to get a book off the ground. For me, after I write a book, for me to write a book, have it copy, have, write a book, have it, have a copy edit, a proofread, um, a book cover designed, and have it formatted for ebook and paperback to be uploaded on the, on the Amazon platform, I'm all in at $2,500. If any of your listeners out there are thinking about getting into writing, do it yourself. And just read, read, read different articles about it. There's a great company, and they've never turned, they've never screwed me. It's called ebooklaunch.com. They're out of Canada. It's an a la carte service. A lot of these services tell you, give me five, give me ten, give me three grand. We're going to give you a ghostwriter. We're going to give you a cover. We're going to promote it. Yeah, okay. They're going to give you a shitty book. They're not going to promote it, and they're going to take your money. If you do it yourself, you control the royalties. And you promote it. Um, I just got lost in my train of thought. But when I, after I wrote my book, my first book, it really wasn't selling. And I realized I had better start doing something to pump life into this book. And that's, you know, I started reaching out to people like yourself. It's nice enough to give me a platform to talk about my books. Or I, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter constantly promoting my books. You have to. You could have the greatest book in the world, but if nobody knows about it, it's not going to sell. Same thing with having a podcast, my friend. You got to get out there and pump it and pump it and make it just like writing books. You got to keep, well, obviously I probably do more podcasts than you do books, but I. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, God bless, man. It looks like you've got quite the following. Well, thank you, sir. And, but yeah, I mean, it's good to, I, I'm always interested because. I've you know talked to some of the New York Times bestsellers who you know have the fancy publishers and all this other stuff, but most of them started and worked their way up just like you would have through the police force and all this other stuff. So it's always good to hear the independent author, so to speak, out there kicking ass and taking names. To steal a law you know, enforcement reference. Just, <laughs> well, yeah, and that, that is a good law enforcement reference. I'm just listen. I, I'm just a guy that was lucky enough to have a great career that people find interesting. I, I, think, I think everybody's got a story to tell, but I was lucky enough that I worked in the world's largest police department and I, I, and I had a lot of wild experiences and people are interested in it. You know what I mean? If, if I worked at a Jiffy Lube and I decided to write a book, I don't know if it would sell. It might, but, and I'm not knocking people that work at Jiffy Lube. It's just, I, I'm lucky. You know what I mean? It's just, I was in the right place at the right time and, you know, here I am. So this question comes from our uh, Germantown runner here. What was your favorite beat and your least favorite beat when you were uh, as a cop? Ooh, that's a good one. My my least favorite would be when I was a rookie cop. Um, when you're a rookie cop, right? No, when you, all right. So you're a rookie cop in an NYPD precinct. The old timers don't talk to you. 
it's almost like you're Amish and you're shunned. They don't know what, it's like you were dropped off from out of space. The old timers don't want to talk wait, to you. Wait. They don't want to deal with you. I'm sensing an alien theme there, but go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, you are, you are kind of like an alien. And unless you, you got to keep your mouth, you got to keep your ears open, your mouth shut. And if you prove yourself and you don't have a big mouth and you're not a know-it-all and you're not a little tattletale, You know, you get to ride in a car and stuff. But when you're a rookie, you're at the mercy of anything. And what happens is when you're a rookie, you get all the shitty assignments. So perfect example, when I was a rookie cop working in the South Bronx precinct, I'd come in in the morning. I think I'm going to go in a radio car or get a foot post. Hey, Ferrari, go up to Bronx, Lebanon, Fulton Hospital. There's a woman, there's, there's a woman who swallowed 15 balloons of heroin. They just removed her from her stomach. She, you got to watch her in the hospital until she's well enough to go to court. Oh, you know, you think you're going to be doing all this hot shit. I'm sitting in a hospital with, with a woman handcuffed to a bed who doesn't speak a word of English, waiting to get well until she can go to she can go to court. Or when somebody dies, right, be it in the street or in an apartment, the police come. And the police do a prim primary investigation. And once the detectives leave, the medical examiner has to come to sign off on the body. So the medical examiner will come and say, all right, they'll call the family doctor. How old was this person? What was their medical history? If they think that there's foul play involved, obviously they're going to, the body's going to the morgue. If not, the ME will release the body to a funeral home to the family. Well, this takes hours. There's only a couple of MEs in New York, and people are dropping like flies in a city with 9 million people. So think about this. Think about sitting in an apartment house with a dead person, sometimes all by yourself, and this person's been dead for days, weeks, months. The place smells like death, and you have to stay there with this person until the ME comes and tells you, yeah, Call the family and, and they can release the body. And, and the thing is with DOAs sometimes, if they die in a certain position, their bodies will fill up with gas. So what you got to do is, in, in the New York City Police Department, you have to search the bodies to make sure they have no valuables, rings, jewelry, money on them. So what you got to do is you got to throw a sheet over them and rock them and they'll pop. I mean, not like a balloon, but they'll they'll start oozing out, and then once that's over, you throw on a set of latex gloves, and you gotta, you know, go through their pockets, and it's disgusting. I've had to do it, <laughs> and I would say that would be my least favorable assignment. And you've dropped me some speechless moments, but I had this next question prepared, so I'm gl I'm glad I had it prepared before you went there. Okay. <laughs> Um, your Goodreads bio references uh, having a timeshare in North Korea. See, this is why my listeners are great, because I, I read that earlier today, and didn't, it didn't blink twice, but I love the sense of humor. Unless you really do have a timeshare in North, North Korea, and then it's not a joke, but I think that's a joke. No, I'm, I'm a smart ass, and, and, and you know what? Whoever, whoever caught that, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of you. Yeah. Thanks, for, thanks for reading. Um, what I do is all my books, my autobiography, I change it up. I think one, I was living in Papua New Guinea, um, another time I had, um, living in Bastardo, Italy. Yeah. I just, I just like to change it up to see if my listeners are paying, if my readers are paying attention. And obviously by your listeners, they are. They are. I, I totally skimmed over it and missed it, but I, I, I was going for headlines, but of course I, I buried the first one, right? That I should have been all over that. We should have talked about that earlier. <laughs> That's fine. Now, um, so what was your favorite though? You told me the least favorite there, but we got we got to finish that question. Oh, the mo I mean the, the the most favorite thing I enjoyed about being a cop and a detective with a car chaser. So the dirty little secret in the New York City Police Department, and again, I'm retired 15 years, so I don't know what's changed. So, you know, people are, "Oh, that's not true." Well, maybe it's not, but when I was there it is. The dirty little secret is you're not allowed to chase. You're not supposed to get involved with car chases unless it's a unless it's a, a, a violent felony, a robbery, a burglary, um, shots fired. Stolen cars, they do not want you chasing stolen cars. Well, that was a problem for me because I was an expert in stolen cars. And the dirty little secret is they'll let you chase unofficially, but God forbid um, you crash the radio car or a civilian gets hurt or the bad guy gets really hurt, you know, they're going to cut your balls off. 
for the listeners out there, I was involved in many, many stolen car chases, and each one was more fun than the next. It's it's like living a dream. It's like being a kid playing cops and robbers, but you're really doing it. I mean, going I, now I wouldn't have the ball to do it now. I mean, we weren't wearing seatbelts back then. I mean, I, I very easily could have lost my life in some of those car chases, but I mean, oh God, they were fun. I mean, just the looks on people's faces and just the conversations in the cars, you're chasing somebody. It just, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's like jumping. It's like bungee jumping off a bridge or something. So you mentioned working some of these. Is there any famous cases that someone out there might know that you worked on? I worked on a case. Uh, I think I, I mentioned it earlier. Um, you had Chinese nationals that uh, came to the United States, and they were basically involved. They were having stolen vehicles exported out of the country. So what these guys were doing was they were based out of Brooklyn. They paid, so you had the Asians, the, the Chinese, they, they paid a Jamaican from the Bronx as like the manager. And what he would do is they paid him $5,000 a car and he farmed out crews of steel teams and he paid each thief $500 a car. The cars would go out to Brooklyn. They would sit overnight in a park around this park area, make sure they didn't have GPS or LoJack or anything like that. The cars would go in to this large warehouse that they had rented. The cars would go into shipping containers. The first two cars would go into the shipping container. They would let the air out of the tires so the car would sit lower in the container. Then they would build platforms to put additional vehicles on top so they could get three to four cars per container. From there, the stolen cars were trucked to Newark, New Jersey, where they got railed across the country to uh, Long Beach, California, where they were put on, on ships that went out to the Pacific Rim. Now, what made this, this, these individuals, I mean, really interesting was when we went up on wiretaps, it became apparent that the thieves were in the murder for hire business. So these guys were, I mean, just taking three, five, ten grand to, to bump somebody off. And uh, early on in the case, we had picked off one of the thieves and, you know, we were debriefing him and he was telling us about this guy, Fausto. And we said, I said, well, how many people has he killed? He goes, how many fingers and toes do you have? And I thought he was shitting us, but the reality is, and your listeners want to look it up, the guy's name is Fausto Gonzalez. He's in Attica now in upstate New York. Um, if you Google uh, China's Biggest Wheel, there's a New York Post article. I don't know if it's still up there, but I worked on that case. And the, the main killer and uh, the hitman, I mean, the guy was like five foot five, maybe 125 pounds soaking wet. He'd kill you to look at you. I mean, just, I mean... Just a badass guy. But anyway, when the case came down, um, you know, we arrested like 20 people. We recovered a ton of cars and, you know, everybody went to jail. We solved a lot of homicides because then the thieves started talking because a lot of these guys were wheelmen, started giving up the guys they were driving to homicide. That's craziness. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about the logistics of trying to ship all these cars. and I mean, let alone the murder. I'm just that busy guy who's, you know, like, I, you know, I'm looking at a pile of stuff that I don't have organized, let alone, you know, organized cars to go across the country. I don't know if I'm just baffled by the the process of it all, man. You're talking big, you're talking big money. You're talking big money. Um, I don't know what they were getting for the cars in Shanghai. I mean, the Asians, when we scooped them up, they weren't talking. And, uh, but, but I mean, if they were paying 5,000 a car and it probably cost them, I don't know, this is 20 years ago, five grand for the shipping container, you know what I mean? To, to ship. I mean, they, they were making money. I mean, no doubt about it. And the funny thing, the funny thing was like when you're on a wiretap, a lot of it can be boring. Sometimes guys are talking in code. But every now and then, right, like they let their guard down. And it was funny because it was around Valentine's Day. And uh, the Chinese guy running the thing was on the phone with the Jamaican, the middleman. And he's, um, I want more cars. I want more cars. And the Jamaican goes, hey, man, it's Valentine's Day. My thieves want to spend time with their ladies. I'm doing a terrible <laughs> accent. And he goes, I don't care about Valentine's Day. I want more cars. It was just so funny. Like, it was like the cultural differences, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, love has a different meaning for different people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, 
So, how, okay, so obviously I'm going back to the Hollywood thing for a minute because every day seems to be exciting to a degree on those shows, but how often is work memorable like that? Depends on what you make of it. I was always an active. I was always an active cop, and I was a detective. I was always kicking the bees' nest. So for me, I was always involved in something. I always had a case going. I always had something on the back burner. Or if I didn't have anything going, I would jump in the back seat with two other guys that were going to make an arrest. Like the NYPD can be as exciting or as boring as you want it to be. Now that's not to say you can't be an active cop and have boring days. And I known guys that would run away from trouble that wound up getting involved in shootings. And we would laugh. Like, he got involved in a shoot. Like, the last guy. Like, the guy that would throw on a windbreaker over his uniform over his uniform when he left the station house to get a sandwich winds up getting into a gun battle. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it'd be like, like the ones that would hide. It would find them. And, like, my old partner, we used to call cancer because he killed more people than cancer. You want to hear a really good story quickly? Yeah. Yes, please. So this is the early 90s, mid-80s. You know, we're young cops. We're going out to bars. My old partner used to work with this guy who was an amateur magician. And we'd go out to bars, talking to girls, and the magician would come over, and he starts pulling coins behind girls' ears and pulling flowers out of his sleeve. And I turn to my old partner. I go, you know, he's fucking cock-blocking us with magic. Would you get him out of here? And he goes, you know, the thing is, I wish he took his NYPD career as seriously as he did his magic career. So anyway, a couple of weeks later... They get called down to a basement apartment on a midnight and the call comes over as calls for help. So there's two doors. The first door, nobody answers. My old partner, cancer, goes to bang on the second door. The magician tells him, no, don't knock on the door. And my partner goes to bang on the door. He goes, no, no, come on. He was late. He goes, come on, let's just get out of here. So they leave. What they didn't know was behind door number two, the super of the building lived there and he was selling coke out of the apartment. Well, he fell behind in his drug payments. Well, in the drug world, you know, wholesale, drug wholesalers don't cancel your credit card or send friendly <laughs> reminders you behind the payments. So what they did was they sent a couple of hitters, and it's an old gypsy trick. What they did was they put an attractive female in front of the door and knocked on the door. The super said, oh, wow, this, this hot chick at the door, she wants to buy Coke. He opened the door. The three of them bum rush him. They start pistol whipping him. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? He don't have the answers. So they shoot him in the head. They roll him up in the carpet and they take his body out and they throw him in the, in the building furnace. So while he's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log, they're ransacking the apartment. So now, fast forward, my old partner and the magician are outside the door and they're going to knock on the door. So the bad guys come up with a plan. They tell the girl who's in on this. They go, listen, if those two cops knock on that door, this is what we're going to do. You start yelling at them in Yugoslavian and point to the kitchen. When you walk past this room, jump on the floor, we'll come out and shoot them in the head. We'll throw them in the furnace and we'll get out of here. Well, they never knocked on the door. So a week or two later, the super's family is like, where is this guy? They go to the police. The detectives get involved. They check. They do what's called a run on the building. You see there's a 911 call into the basement. They call in my old partner and the magician and they go, hey, you guys responded there in the midnight. Do anything suspicious? And they go... No, no, we, we didn't knock on that door. But the funny thing is, there was a car, when we were leaving, there was a car parked outside on a fire hydrant. Well, my old partner gave that car a ticket. The ticket came back to the getaway car. They grabbed the female. The female, trying to distance herself from the homicide, gives up the two guys. They go back to the building. <laughs> Dead a winter, they had to shut, the, shut the, uh, the furnace off and let it cool down so they could go, into the, go in there and pull out the guy's teeth and bones. So that's a story from my book called uh, "Last Night a Magician's uh, Last Night a Magician Saved My Life." <laughs> okay. Oh, so the books are available Amazon. I'm assuming. Yeah, all my books are on Amazon. All, all your listeners got to do is go to Amazon Books and just type in Vic Ferrari, and my my author page will pop up. And you said you're on Facebook, and I know you're on Twitter because, you know, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Vic Ferrari five zero. Okay, so we've got about five minutes left. So I almost forgot to do this, and I like doing this, especially of people like you because you're a detective. So we're, we're kind of in the same business, right? You talk to people, I talk to people. So give me some advice for talking to people that maybe aren't telling me the truth, or I want to find out if they're uh, telling me the truth. All right, 
Listen, when you throw when you throw a question at somebody and they repeat the question, they're buying time. They're buying time for themselves because they don't have an answer. You know, I, I mean, you go like one time this this kid stabbed his mother to death, and then he he uh, he ransacked the he ransacked the apartment to make it look like a burglary, and he left. And then when he left the door open, and no one in the Bronx decided to go into the apartment, so he came back and called nine one one. We show up, and the apartment's ransacked, and I go. When did you leave? What time did you leave your mother? And he goes, what time did I leave my mother? I go, yeah. Oh, like three hours ago. I go, well, what time did you get back? What time did I get back? When people start repeating your question, maybe once I can see, but when, when, when someone's doing it, you've got them. You know what I mean? It's, they're, they're buying time. Also, you know, a nervous laugh or they start looking downward. There's a lot of little ticks, people, or the leg. The leg will start jumping. Now, I'm a nervous person. My leg jumps to begin with. But, you know, you put the screws to somebody and their leg starts going, hopping like a rabbit. You may, you may be onto something. Yeah. I, I like the repeating the thing, though. That's pretty good because I've heard – I've been doing this for years, so you start picking up on things. So I was, I'm glad to confirm that with somebody. Do you get do you get a lot of bullshit on it to <laughs> come on your show? No, but every once in a while you do get one, and it's good to know, Right. I mean, Absolutely. like I said, I, I mean, I get into some wild things, and sometimes it's good to know. I mean, I have my thoughts, right? But there's also ways to verify those thoughts. Uh oh. Vic, you still there? Okay. So, um, get, you got any. I, I feel like I'm missing something. Like, uh,. We've run through all this stuff, but I I feel like I've missed something with you. How anything else you want to throw out at me? Oh, uh, listen, uh, I I appreciate it if your if your listeners check out my books. Or I've made all my books. You can pre- preview the first twenty percent for free. So all you got to do is go to the Kindle edition, and you can just open up my books, and you don't have to download anything. You just click go go to the Kindle edition. You can read the first twenty percent of my book. Probably like the first chapter and a half or whatever. And you get a taste. If you like it, buy it. If not, I understand. Um, I want to thank you for you nice enough to put me on your show. And I appreciate your listeners weighing in with questions. I didn't realize this was live, so I think that's really cool that they were weighing in with questions. And if they got any other questions, like I said, they can hit me up on Instagram or um, Twitter at VicFerrari50. Uh, as long as they're nice, I'll answer their questions. Yeah, I was going to say, I do. Ha- I, I got I to gotta shout out to my listeners, too. They're some of the best in the business. and. They keep me going, and they keep me on my toes because sometimes I, they put up things like that, and I'm like, "There's no way that's true. I'm not going Ron Burgundy and just reading a line." And then I, they, <laughs> <laughs> I know you got a lot of trouble doing that shit. <laughs> and then uh, I, 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 I vet it out, and I'm like, "Oh, I do have to ask him about that." <laughs> okay, so what the usual question, which is, "What's your favorite breakfast cereal?" Uh, when I was a kid, probably Lucky Charms. Do you eat breakfast now? I do, but I'm trying to watch my weight, so it's egg whites in the morning, which I absolutely hate. But it's, I do it for the protein. What am I going to do? Uh, coffee or tea, then? Coffee. Some things never change, right? <laughs> I didn't get into That guy Cancer got me into coffee. I was a tea drinker my whole life. Oh. I used to bust my balls. You're a fucking pussy. And I was like, drink coffee. And I'm like, I don't like coffee. because, dude. You're an adrenaline fiend, and now I'm hooked. Wow. Uh, see, I, and there I was. See, I stepped right in that. Some things never change, and there you are, smacking me back and saying, yes, sir, they do. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vic, hey, I appreciate you, and I appreciate the candor and the the good stories and the not-so-good stories, And but I, I think we had a, a successful conversation tonight. I think so, too, and I really appreciate you having me on your show. And uh, next year, when the next one comes out, send me another email, and we'll do it again. Uh, my book should be out in June. I'll reach out to you. Okay. Well, definitely. Either You know when, you know how to find me, and I definitely look forward to talking to you again. Jim, thanks again. Have a good night. You, too. And that's, uh, there we go. And I just want to take take a moment here before the end of the show. I opened Facebook during the show, which is something I normally don't do, but I'm glad I did tonight. And... Uh, Send a uh, message to Cat Hobson. I seen her mother has passed. So, uh, thinking about Cat tonight and um, 
She's normally on the pond, and she's a great friend of the show. And uh, so take a moment think about Kat and her family as we uh, exit out stage left. Um, so there's that tonight. And uh, looking forward to seeing you all again next week. And we're going to have some more fun with, I don't even know who's on next week. Sorry. Normally do, but I don't know tonight. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Mallard Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think. Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!